Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Theological Ar Arsonist. Um, I'm so glad you could join us today, and hey, check this out. I've got Theological Arsonist t-shirts now, and I'm going to have a link below to go pick one up if you want to support the movement um, and support really this podcast. So as you know, we're talking about theology and all different forms, specifically though within the, the realm of Reformed theology. And so today I have my guest, Jeremiah Short. Uh, thank you, brother, so much for being here. And we're going to be talking about a really fun topic today and one that I think a lot of people try to shy away from because it can kind of bring a little controversy with it. And so we're going to be talking about baptism, more specifically a case for pedo-baptism. And so Jeremiah, before we get into the subject, for those of viewers who don't know who you are, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course, um, for those who know me and for those who don't know me, my name is uh, Jeremiah Short. I am 23 years old. I am a pastoral intern at a Presbyterian church uh, down here in Alabama, but I am also a student at Westminster Theological Seminary um, up in Pennsylvania. Um, I also run my own YouTube account, uh, called The Black Doctor, but I also run a TikTok account, uh, The Black Doctor 21, which now has uh, crossed over the uh, the 5,000 subscriber mark or the 5,000 follower mark. So I'm very grateful uh, to all of you who, who love my content um, and, you know, support me. I also run a theological podcast along with my, uh, my fellow seminarian, uh, Chris, or, or we, we call him uh, Dulos. And the podcast is called Dulos Theology. So find us on YouTube, find us on any podcast app, and I hope you enjoy our content. Cool. Yeah, and I'll make sure to have links down in the description for all of the stuff that you want down there. So people watching this, please go down and support Jeremiah, go support the podcast. And yeah, so without further ado, brother, let's get into this subject. I'm just going to straight up hand it to you, get us started where you want, and let's, let's dive into this thing. Awesome, man. So um, in, in, in this podcast, I want to begin with a positive explanation about why Presbyterians specifically and the Reformed believe that baptism for infants uh, is biblical. And hopefully, as we go through it, I will, I will provide a defense of the doctrine uh, as well. But in order to start, let's begin instead of in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 through 13. Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 through 13. And um, that is where the first visible administration of the covenant of grace is presented to us. Um, it says here, verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give unto you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between you and me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 
You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who was born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And so based on this passage and many others, I want to make three to four particular arguments for infant baptism. The first one is the sacrament is understanding the sacramental language in scripture in reference to the covenant signs. Number two is the pre-advent sign of personal salvation, which was circumcision. Number three, household circumcision and household baptism and its relationship between the two. And then number four, the fact that children of believers are included in the new covenant and in the new covenant promises. Mm. Now, Let's now before, be before you get going there, well, you did mention earlier, just for people who are maybe newer to the Reformed theology thing, you mentioned the covenant of grace. And yes. so I, could you just distinguish kind of what, what you mean by the covenant of grace versus, say, the covenant of works and just kind of give a basic overview uh, so people could kind of have that, that knowledge going into this? Sure, sure, sure. Um, basically, the, the Presbyterian view of God's covenants is found within the Westminster Confession, chapter 7, where the beginning of the chapter says this, the distance between God and the creature is so great that even though man owes obedience to God, he would never have any knowledge of him as, his, as our blessedness and reward without any voluntary um, condensation on God's part, which he has chosen to express it by way of covenant, which is an agreement or a bond that is administered by God. So Presbyterians view God's covenants in two ways, either the covenant of works or the covenant of grace. The covenant of works was made from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3, <laughs> where God has established Adam with a covenant of works. He said that all of the trees that I give to you, but you shall not eat of the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do that, you shall die. Basically, God has made an agreement with Adam that if he obeyed God, if he did perfect personal obedience, he would receive God as his blessed reward. But if he failed, he would bring death upon himself and all who are under him. And of course, as we know, Adam fell. <laughs> but immediately after that fall, God did something amazing. He established another covenant, which is called the covenant of grace. That started in Genesis 3.15, where a promise is made in the midst of a curse that God will bring a redeemer, that, that, that this particular redeemer will be part of the seed of the woman separate from the seed of the serpent. And though the serpent will bruise this person's heel, the serpent's head would be crushed. And so the entirety of all other covenants following is an administration or exploration of this same covenant of grace, this covenant of promise. Excellent. Awesome. You can resume where you left off. I just wanted to clear that up for anybody who was new to that idea. So, Of course, brother. 
Um, and, and so I want to start with my first argument, understanding the sacramental language of scripture. Um, and, and speaking of the Westminster Confession, I want to read in your hearing what Presbyterians believe about the sacraments. Um, this is found in chapter 27, and I want to start at section two and read throughout section two. Quote, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relationship or sacramental union between the sign and the thing that is signified. Whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. So this is, this is actually very interesting because it really falls into the first part of this argument. Um, we must really understand how scripture speaks about the sacraments. Because if we don't, we run into two particular errors. One is ultimate sacramentalism. And the other, which is more common in Protestant circles, is Zwinglianism. Right. So the, the first error that I want to talk about is sacramentalism, which is something that our Roman Catholics, um, our Eastern Orthodox, and even the federal visionists believe. And that perspective is that the sign, the sacrament, actually confers or brings about what it signifies. Because the Roman Catholics believe that baptism actually regenerates you. Right. That it actually brings about the grace of regeneration by the act itself. Right. But of course we know that works do not save us or even acts of grace do not save us. Right. But we are saved by grace alone in Christ alone. But another error, basically swinging the pendulum around, is Zwinglianism. Ulrich Zwingli, even though he stepped back from the Roman Catholic view, he basically went off the cliff on the other side. Right. He said, even though they don't confer salvation, that means they don't do anything at all. Basically, they're just works that we do to profess our faith in God. Right. But that doesn't fit the, the biblical evidence at all. Scripture is quite clear that the sacraments actually do something but the question is, what does it do? Right. And so I want us to focus on verse 10 and, and notice how God speaks of his covenants. He says in verse 10, this is my covenant that you shall keep. And he goes on to say, every male child among you shall be circumcised. So God actually calls circumcision his covenant. Now, let me ask you this question. Yeah. Is the physical act of circumcision God's covenant? No. Exactly. But what God does is that he relates the covenant with the sign. Right. The sign is related to the thing signified. And there is a, there is a sacramental union between the two. And he talks about this all the time in Scripture. Let me give you a few other examples. Um, let's see, Matthew 26, verse 26 and 37. Would you mind reading that for me? Yeah, sure. Can you say the reference again? Mm -hmm. Matthew chapter 26, okay. 26 through 27. We're getting to the Lord's Supper here. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take 
eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Hmm. Now let me ask you this question. Yes. Is the bread and wine physically the body and blood of Christ? No. Does it turn into the physical body and blood of Christ? No. Not at all. Transubstantiation is not biblical. So, so what exactly is Jesus talking about? He's right. talking about that, that there is a sacramental relationship between the sign, the bread and the wine, and the thing signified, Christ's body and blood. So that when we, when we partake of the bread and wine in faith, we are actually receiving Christ's body and blood through the means of his own spirit. Right. And for another example, let's turn to Acts chapter 22, verse 16. I'll, I'll read it for us here. Ananias is, is talking to the apostle Paul after he's converted, and he says, And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name, as in the name of the Lord. Now, let me ask you this question. Does the rite of baptism itself wash away sins? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He is actually speaking sacramentally as it, the, the sacrament of baptism and regeneration are so closely related right. that he speak of the sign as if, it, as if it is the thing signified. This is why we see baptism always called the, the laver of regeneration, the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's because that sign is so closely related to the thing that it signifies that just as we are washed with water, God promises to wash us with his Holy Spirit, that they're, they're spoken of as pretty much being the same thing. Hmm. And so circumcision is spoken of in the exact same way. If we do not understand that, we will miss everything that scripture says about the sacraments. And one thing I also want to point out is that we should not shy away from using the language that scripture does use in relation to the sacraments. Because I used to shy away from Acts chapter 22, verse 16. I used to think, you know, I, I should have corrected Ananias' language on that because that doesn't make any sense. Right, right. We, we need to realize that the problems that we have with scripture is not because of scripture, it's because of us. Right. And I think too, if I could just jump in real quick, I think something that we've gotten away from recognizing in our, I would say, more Zwinglian type theologies that has kind of infiltrated a lot of Protestantism is we've kind of forgotten that within the sacraments, too, it's not merely an expression of us outward, right? It's not when I'm to, to go through a baptism is not me professing outwardly to show God and to show people. It's ultimately a grace of God. It's a, it's a gift of God. The very nature of the sacrament is a gift of God. And so I think when we kind of switch the lens to make it more man-focused, we also lose a huge element of experiencing uh, the, the divine in a, in a very unique way through the sacrament as well. Amen. Amen. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. 
And before we move on to the second point, I want to point out that the covenant, and especially the, yeah, the covenant that circumcision is a point towards is an everlasting covenant. It's something that does not stop. We, we see here in, in multiple verses in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Uh, verse 8, for an everlasting covenant and I will be their God. Um, let's see. And verse 13, so shall my covenant be in your flesh and everlasting lasting covenant hmm. this covenant is an everlasting covenant and there is only one other covenant that is described as everlasting hmm. and that's the new covenant right both of those covenants have the same promise but we'll we'll definitely get into that later on and so now that we've established how scripture speaks about the sacraments in general let's turn to the specific meaning of circumcision, okay. which is point two, circumcision as the pre-advent sign of personal salvation. Let's turn to Romans chapter four, verses 11 through 12. Romans chapter four, verses 11 through 12. And Paul writing on justification by faith describes the justification of Abraham. And he says in verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. This purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Verse 12, and to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Mm. And so here we come to the, to the point of Paul's argument in Romans chapter three, chapters three and four, that justification is without works. Right. And the prime example, our father Abraham and his establishment in the covenant of grace. We see here in Romans chapter 4 verse 11 that what circumcision was is that it is a sign of course of God's covenant as we saw in Genesis chapter 17. But it is also a seal of justification by faith alone. Mm. Abraham was justified first and then he received the sign of the sign of justification afterwards. Circumcision was a seal of perfect personal salvation through the acts of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Mm -hmm. It is the exact same meaning of what baptism is. Mm. And so here we also see what circumcision is not. I've, I've seen my Baptist brothers try to define circumcision in a way that the Apostle Paul doesn't define it. Circumcision is not a genetic sign of identification with the people of Israel. It might have culturally evolved to be that way, but it, it originally is not. And it is also not a sign of the land promises, because just because you were circumcised 
doesn't mean you got the land promises that are found within Canaan. We see not only in 1 Corinthians 10, but also in Hebrews, that even though people were circumcised, even though they were within the, the community of Israel, many did not receive the promised land. And the question is why? Hebrews makes it quite clear. They did not have faith. Faith is the only means by which we receive the promises of God. Right. And circumcision is merely an outward sign of that particular faith. But yet we have a problem here. We, we know fully that, that for Abraham and, and for Abraham's children, circumcision was a sign of personal salvation. But yet, it was not only given to Abraham who had faith, but also his children on the eighth day of their birth without a profession of faith. Hmm. And the only reason that they did it is because of God's divine command. Hmm. Remember, Abraham didn't have to ask, wait, wait a second. If this, is a, if this is a sign of faith, why do my children get it? They don't have faith. Right. Abraham never had to ask these questions because he knew those weren't the relevant questions to ask. God was going to make his promises, make his promises come to fruition, whether it was done through our faith or not. And he gave us a command to fulfill by divine fiat and divine command to give the sign not only to ourselves as believers, but also to our children. Hmm. But our Baptist brothers will say, oh, well, th that's all well and good, but that was part of the Old Testament. The, the sign has changed. So shouldn't the practice change as well? Surely not. I, I want to read um, uh, Samuel Miller. He, is a, uh, he, he was a a professor at a Presbyterian seminary, and he is a very prolific writer. Um, he wrote in the Presbyterian Standard uh, called, in an article called Suffer Little Children. I would highly recommend that you guys read this particular, um, uh, this particular text. Its official title is um, Infant Baptism, Scriptural and Reasonable and baptism by sprinkling or effusion, the most suitable and edifying mode. Of course, that, that particular title gets our Baptist friends riled up. <laughs> but, but I do recommend you read this article because he, he, he makes some amazing statements here. He says in relation to the, um, to the Abrahamic covenant, and yet this covenant seal, circumcision, was solemnly appointed by God to be administered and was actually administered for nearly 2,000 years to infants of the tenderest age in token of their relationship to God's covenant family and of their right to the privileges of that covenant. What, what we're talking about is not in relation to the, to the spiritual blessings of that covenant, which is salvation, justification, and redemption, but to the physical relationship of the covenant, being brought into the worship of God, having the word preached to you, partaking of the sacraments, those particular physical blessings are the right of the covenant children. And that was evidence within the Old Testament. Mm. 
here then is a fact, a fact incapable of being distinguished or denied, nay, a fact acknowledged by all, on which the advocates of infant baptism may stand upon as an immovable rock. For if infinite wisdom once saw that it was right and fit that infants should be made subjects of a seal of the righteousness of faith before they were incapable of exercising faith, then surely a transaction in the same in substance may be right and fit now. Baptism, which is in like manner a seal of the righteousness of faith, may without any impropriety be applied equally early. What once undoubtedly existed in the church and that by a divine appointment may exist still without any impeachment of either the wisdom or benevolence of him who appointed it." End quote. And so we see here that, that Samuel Miller is arguing that Adam, that Abraham gave the covenant sign to his children by divine command. And we see nowhere in scripture that that divine command has been taken away from. Mm. But in fact, in scripture, we see that pattern continuing. And for the evidence of that, I want you to point, I want to point you to multiple passages in scripture. I want to begin with this. The visible membership of the church in relation to its administration has not changed. We saw that from, from Professor Miller. And so just as we see household circumcision in the Old Testament administration of the covenant of grace, we find household baptism in the new covenant administration. And so as we walk through some of these passages, I want you, Jonah, and the members of the audience to ask this question. If the concept of corporate solidarity of the family with regard to the sign of the covenant of grace has been terminated as our Baptist friends hold, where's the evidence of this? Hmm. The first example that I want, to, I want to look at is Acts chapter 16, verses 14 through 15. Acts chapter 16, verses 14 through 15. And here we read of an account of a woman named Lydia. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Here we see an active recording of regeneration. And after that, she was baptized and her household as well. And she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Mm. And so I want to ask you a, a few questions here. Sure. In this encounter, who is the person that is recorded to have believed? Well, looks like Lydia. Exactly. But who was baptized when she believed? Her and her household. Exactly. Yeah. The entire household was baptized on the profession of the head of the household. Mm. That's powerful. Uh, 
exactly right. <laughs> another, another passage is, is from the same chapter. Um, scroll down to verse 30, and we'll read from 30 to 34. This one I find even more explicit. We see here in verse 30, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Remember, the Philippian jailer has just seen Paul and Silas released from prison, and he's about to kill himself. And then Paul and Silas say, wait, don't, don't, don't do that. We're still here. We're still here. And so he, he brings them out and he says, sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who are in his house. This is, this is actually, it, it seems to be advocating for the Baptist position, right? Because it says, you know, believe and you will be saved. And, and then when he's brought, and then when Paul and Silas are brought to the house of the Philippian jailer, they preach the gospel to all who are in his house. So we, we should expect, if the Baptists are correct, that all the household believes and all the household is baptized. But is that what we see? Verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Verse 34, then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Mm. This is actually rather amazing because in, in this explicit passage, who is the one recorded to explicitly have believed? The jailer. And yet, who was baptized? His whole family. Exactly. So even when you have the proclamation of the gospel preached to everyone in the household, the only record that we have here is that the head of the household is, believes and is baptized, and then on behalf of his profession, the rest of the household is brought within the covenant community. Hmm. And so my, my Baptist friends always ask me this question. Well, if it, if it was only the Philippian jailer who was baptized and believed, why is everyone celebrating? The simple answer is because they get covenant blessings as well. They are brought within the covenant community of the church. They now have a greater family. And it is most likely through their influence and through God working in the family that they will be saved as well. Mm. And that's why they celebrate because he, the head of the household, had believed. Mm. And then the last passage I want to bring about is um, really one of the ones that swayed me into advocating for the, uh, for the Presbyterian position. Can, and I, that is, can I take a guess? Can I take a guess? Sure. Acts chapter 2. <laughs> That's one of the yes. <laughs> Let, let's go to Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. I can read this one. Sure, go ahead. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Amen. I mean, we see from this passage is that, that, I mean, I could spend an entire sermon on this passage, but Peter is actually referring back to, to, uh, to Joel 2 in relation to the, to the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, which is actually the promise given to Abraham. Right. That's why he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But he says this, for the promise is for you and your children and all who are afar off, as many of the Lord our God shall call. Does this not seem as like an exact parallel to what happens when God establishes the covenant with Abraham? He says, not only shall you be circumcised, but your children and those who are either born in your house or bought with your money. Right. You see the believer, their children, and the Gentiles. The church has always been a mixed body of Jews and Gentiles, and that is the exact same pattern that we find here in Acts. It's hmm. powerful, man. Indeed. And the, the last passage that I want to get to is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. This one I find so powerful. Because I, to be honest, I can't really find any Baptist retort to this one, at least one that is substantial. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, it's talking about marriage, at, at least marriage and divorce between Christians and non-Christians. And so he says in verse 12, to the rest say, I, not the Lord, as in relation to he is giving his apostolic authority to answer this because Christ didn't speak on this in his earthly ministry, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Verse 14 is very important. For the unbelieving husband is made holy or sanctified because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Children of believers are holy. And, and really, we, we, we really need to understand this passage. What does it mean for the, for the unbelieving husband to be sanctified by the wife or, or vice versa? What, what, what Paul is actually talking about, he's applying a standard made in the Old Testament to the New Testament. For example, a gold that is, that is brought outside the camp into the camp to worship is sanctified by the temple. Mm. So what, what, Paul is, what Paul is comparing is the terms unclean and holy from hagios, holy, to agathartos, unclean. And that's the entire relationship that is found in the book of Leviticus between things that are unclean outside of the camp or holy or sanctified inside the camp and being used for worship. And so he says that the unbelieving husband is sanctified because of his wife. The church is so pure by the Holy Spirit. 
that they are not defiled by the unbelieving husband, but in fact, the opposite. They are able to be brought into the covenant community for worship. So that, and, and the reasoning that he uses is because if that was not the case, your children would be unclean, as in they would be outside of the camp. You could not bring them into the covenant community. But as it is, this is the truth. They are holy. They are sanctified. They are part of the covenant community and are viewed as one of us. Hmm. The only other arguments that I've gotten from my Baptist friends is that this is merely talking about them having a positive, of parents having a positive influence on their children in a Christian community. But that happens whether or not these children are holy or not. Right. And plus, too, the language that Paula uses suggests a much stronger implication than that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's really interesting, man. I, I, I'm so grateful that you're unpacking this because I think that, to me, it's becoming so, I, I told you off camera, you know, that I've come to accept this view, but it's becoming right. even more abundantly clear through this. So I appreciate this so much. No problem, my friend. Um, and, and so as we've seen, that there is much more to these texts as, as our Baptist friends would want us to, to, to make out of. Because if we expected the practice of infant inclusion within the covenant to be terminated, that it is over, we would see an exclusive focus on individuals. And yet, if we look into the book of Acts, that's the rarity instead of the norm. Right. Right. Yeah, I think really quickly, just kind of since I've much more recently than you, I, I, I don't know, have you ever not been Presbyterian? Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. actually. Okay. I've, I've, only, I've only been a Presbyterian for about, about a year and a half, two years. Oh, okay. Well, for me, having just come to this this view more recently, I think one of the biggest things that I'm seeing that my Baptist brothers and sisters struggle with is is the idea of separating part being part of the covenant community and not necessarily being a saved born again believer. And so to separate those two things and and just like the old covenant, right? Circumcision did not mean you were saved. Paul's very clear, Romans 2, 25, circumcision has no value and it's of the spirit, right? And so right. we see that picture. And I think a lot of people, because of this idea of believer's baptism, they, they don't separate the covenantal aspect of being part of the covenant community with the actual saving faith. Right. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> I've said this multiple times, and of course my Baptist friends get a little bit upset with me. <laughs> It's that our Baptist friends have an over-realized eschatology yeah. because of the lofty statements made about the new covenant that everyone will know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest of them. They're thinking that since that is going to be the case, we should get as close as possible to that within the visible church. And so even though they acknowledge the difference between the visible and invisible church, they try their hardest to blend them together. But the concept of the visible and invisible church is founded first and foremost within the Old Covenant or within the Old Testament. Right. We have always seen the difference between those who are in the covenant 
and those who are of the covenant. This is why every single time we hear in the law, we say, not only are you physically circumcised, but the, the, the prophets pray that one day God will circumcise the foreskin of our hearts right. so that we not be stiff-necked any longer. And that is the promise that is perfectly found within the substance of the covenant of grace. I will cleanse you. I will circumcise your heart. Right. Yeah. And I think too, <laughs> they, they need to, there needs to be an acknowledgement that even if you profess believers baptism, don't think for a second that your church is full of believers just because they were baptized. Amen. And so just in that sense too, there's already an inconsistency with the, the frame of mind in that direction as well. So, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And, and that really shows that we need to have a clearer understanding of the new covenant promises, which actually brings me to my last point that the children of believers are included within the new covenant promises. So for example, let's turn to, a, to, uh, to Isaiah chapter 44, verses 3 through 4. Isaiah, chapter 44, verses 3 through 4. The word of the Lord says here, verse 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land, and the streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Mm. And so we hear here that God will pour his spirit on our offspring and his blessings on our descendants. We see also in Ezekiel chapter 37 verses 24 and 25. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 and 25, he says, my servant David will be king over them. He's, he's speaking about Christ. And they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell in there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And we also find it in Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 39 through 40. This is, this is immediately past um, Jeremiah 31, where Baptists really try to make their stake in relation to the new covenant promises. But it says here in the next chapter, verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. There's that everlasting covenant again. Yep. That they will not turn, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And this I love. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Mm. Not only is the new covenant promise given here, not only is the promise of security of salvation given here so that we might not turn away from God, but we also see that the covenant promises are not only related to us, but to our children. Right. 
So what are these passages saying? Are, are these passages saying that, our, that all of our children, by nature of being born as covenant children, are going to be saved? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. But what they do say is that children are a part of the visible administration of the covenant of grace. If they were not part of the administration of the covenant of grace, we would not hear them at all in relation to the new covenant. Right. At all. And so what I want to point out to my Baptist friends and to everyone who is actually, who is listening to this, make sure that the view you hold about the new covenant and its visible administration takes into account what these passages say about the children of believers please. And so I hope that with all of these points, you can see the biblical case for us to receive the baptism of infants. Number one, because the sign of faith has always for 2,000 years and also for 2,000 more in the, new in the new covenant have been given to infants. Number two, that God's covenant of grace has always included them in their visible administration. We saw them in the covenant promises and in the book of Acts. And also number three, that God's new covenant promises are to them as well. For the promises to you and your children and all who are afar off, as many of the Lord our God shall call. My friends, God has always worked through families. When a man comes to Christ, he doesn't come by himself. He gives everything he has, and everything he has becomes God's, including their household. Jesus, well, God says in the Old Testament that the reason that he told that he chose Abraham was so that he might teach his children to obey God. And that one of the purposes that God gave to marriage was to bring up godly offspring godly offspring and that's why we that's why we have the commandment that is found to children in the new covenant that children are to listen to their parents and that we are to raise children in the fear and admonition of the lord not saying that they already are saved but to call them to belief so that they may be saved and so we see that the visible church has always been for four thousand years consisted of believers and their covenant children. And it proclaimed the exact same gospel that Abraham believed. They proclaimed the same gospel that David and Moses believed. And it is the same gospel that we have believed. And so no wonder baptism is called the circumcision of Christ in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, let me read it in your hearing. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Let's actually walk through this passage. In him you were circumcised. Christians, you and I, we have been circumcised, but not physically. 
but with the circumcision made without hands. Mm -hmm. And that is regeneration. This is what circumcision pointed towards by putting off the body of the flesh, of course, not physically, but spiritually, by the circumcision of Christ. Right. Now, what is the circumcision of Christ? We, we, we see that, that Christ was already circumcised on the eighth day, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. Jesus also said that he had a baptism to be baptized with, but that's after his baptism in, in Matthew chapter 3. His baptism and his circumcision is the cross. So when we are circumcised, when the Old Testament people were circumcised, and when we are baptized, we participate in the circumcision of Christ. As it says, having been buried with him in baptism. But it doesn't truly come into effect until we have faith, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Men can be baptized and have the promises given, and they can be part of the covenant community, but they will not receive the spiritual benefits of that covenant until they have faith. The same was made with Isaac. Even though he had a physical sign of faith, he did not receive the promises until he had faith. The same goes for every single Old Covenant believer, and it is the same case with New Covenant believers. Just as infants were circumcised in the Old Testament, they should be baptized in the New Covenant, since the signs and seals and the administrations are identical. Mm. And I think I have made my point. <laughs> I think you've made your case very well. I actually, just before I, I hand it off to you, just to kind of close us out, I wanted to just share, because it's kind of cool for me talking to you, because last time we talked, I was kind of going still back and forth with this idea. And here I'm publicly announcing, hey, I've embraced this. I see it. It's a biblical and one passage that we didn't read today that was actually the passage that convinced me was First uh, Peter chapter 3. Ah. Where Peter gives the, he correlates Noah and the ark with baptism. Right. So he says in verse 20, because they formerly did not obey with when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And so I just want to pause there. And in my head, I was spinning the wheels and going, well, who was preserved in the ark? Yep. It was Noah and his family. Mm -hmm. Noah and his family. And baptism now corresponds to this. And so that was the icing on the cake for me. And also, too, just on a practical note, one of the things having grown up in a lot of non-denominational churches and stuff that I've noticed that is a downfall to not holding this perspective is the responsibility of a man to raise his family is Amen. much is greatly diminished if we don't hold this view because the responsibility as the head of the household bringing your family into this new covenant community and and be, having the responsibility of raising your children to love the Lord, to put their faith in Jesus Christ for the atonement of sins. If we, if we don't recognize that responsibility, I just, my heart breaks because I see so many kids that get 
past high school and go off to college and fall away from the faith. And the parents go, we were in the church. What happened? Well, what happened is you didn't take your role seriously. You, You trusted the church to raise your kids. You trusted the youth groups to raise your kids. And you failed your job because you didn't do what God called you to do, which is to raise your kids. And if we take a covenantal view of the family, it changes everything in terms of how we view our God-given roles as husband, wife, and children. So right. that, that's, that's a huge thing for me, too, in, in pulling me to the side. Yeah, I mean, it's statistically shown. I, I don't really have the, the, the statistic on me, but it is more common that when the head of the household becomes saved, that the rest of the family follows as well. Yeah. And that is really the, that's really the point that I've been trying to make, that God works through families. Right. I said before that God chose Abraham so that he might teach his children to fear the Lord and that we are called to raise godly offspring. I mean, as you said, this is one of the things that I emphasize so much in relation to apologetics and especially in relation to teaching our children the creeds, the confessions, and the catechisms. Because they have the same questions that these, these things teach about who is God? What is salvation? Why do bad things happen to good people? What do you believe and why do you believe it? This is the foundation of what we are supposed to teach to our children. Yes. And so having a covenantal perspective actually falls in line with the biblical narrative. It actually makes us more Jewish than we thought. Right. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, the Bible is a Jewish book. Mm-hmm. And so if we're going to be faithful to the scriptures, we're going to do as God commanded. And, and of course, one of, the, one of the strongest arguments for infant baptism is simply that God has commanded us to give the sign of covenant salvation and perfect and personal salvation to our children. And that sign has, that command has not been taken away. Right. So lest we think that we are wiser than the infinite God, we will continue to obey him. Amen, man. Well, to close this out, if let's say right now you have, in terms of viewership, you have one side that's a bunch of happy Presbyterians that are all cheering. And then you have some angry Baptists that are kind of going, yeah, this guy still does it. He doesn't get it. In closing and in application, what would you say to both sides of, of, of this coin? Um, to, to both my, my Presbyterian brothers, do not view your view of baptism, whether you think it's more historical than the, uh, than the Baptist position. Do not lord your position over anyone else's heads. Remember that you are still fellow servants and fellow uh, fellow slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, and our brothers, even though we disagree, we are still brothers and sisters. And so no matter what side you have on this issue, this is not an essential issue. Mm-hmm. And so when we end up in heaven, we will hold hands with one another. We will stand before the throne and sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty because Christ is king over all of us. Yes. And we still commune with one another. We will laugh and we will celebrate about the things that we got right and the things that our Baptist brothers have gotten wrong. <laughs> I love it. I love it, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been wonderful. And
Dear brother, would you just mind praying for us to close things out? Of course, it's, it's a pleasure. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this, this beautiful day you have given us. Thank you for the joy that you have set within our hearts through the means of your beloved son, Jesus. Thank you for sending your son to fulfill the covenant of grace on our behalf, because it is only through the righteousness of your son that we are able to partake of these gifts. And Lord, thank you for working through families so that we, as covenant children, are able to realize that we have a loving Father who has given himself for us. Father, even though we, we disagree on certain things, let us be reminded of the unity that we have in you. Let us all realize that you are king and that you are reigning over all creation, and that because of that, we are able to proclaim to the world that they are sinners in need of a savior, and that if they repent and trust in you, they will find you to be a perfect savior. Mm -hmm. Give us grace, give us unity, give us love for one another, for it is by that the world knows that we are your disciples. It is in the name of your beloved son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen.